0: Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. Our guest today is Professor Guy Burton about his book Rising Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. Our guest today is Professor Guy Burton about his book Rising Powers and the Arab-Israeli Conflict since 1947. The book studies the way that five rising powers—Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa—a group that is sometimes called the BRICS country uh, countries—I'm sorry—have approached the conflict since it's since it first became internationalized in 1947. Professor Burton, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you, Professor Yakov. Just to put you in the picture, of course, I'm not. I'm only an assistant professor, so doctor would be more appropriate. Oh,
0: we're not in the game of ranking people now. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Uh, let's begin with the more, uh, I guess, personal or background question. Mm-hmm. How did you arrive at this study, and specifically, uh, how did you arrive at the questions of the rising powers or BRIC countries and the Middle East in the first place?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as so. I began my research. I was working in uh, Bir Zayt University in in Palestine back in 2010. Um, At the time, I was working on issues relating to to development and conflict. Um, And as you probably know, Palestine has a very big aid industry there, which is a result of the Oslo peace process. Um, A a lot of the Palestinian organizations sort of are reliant on, on aid from foreign donors. And so I was working on... Uh, issues related to that, and had written a conference paper for for you know at, at the at the university on Arab states' assistance to Palestinians, um, which got me thinking about sort of the the different types of donors out there because much of the donor donor world uh, is primarily sort of American and European, um, and I became increasingly interested in traditional don- in non traditional donors. Sorry, um, around the same time that I arrived there in early 2010, uh, Brazil's then president President Lula had just been in town and that got me thinking about who are these other actors that are, are interested in coming. Um, so I started looking at uh, the Brazil and Venezuela specifically because they seem to be the rising powers in Latin America and, and presented a paper on that and published, published a paper and then uh, moved from there into the BRICS because at the time the BRICS were getting a lot of attention um, at being an alternative source of, of influence. So I guess it was sort of a, a, a progression from, from the work that I was, I was already doing there.
0: Mm-hmm. So can you explain in some details uh, what are the BRIC countries or the BRICs and uh, what they have, uh, why they have been of special interest in IR or international relations in the last couple of decades?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at... I mean, there's two ways you can look at it. So there's the BRICs themselves and then there's obviously the environment in which they're operating. So if I talk about the BRICs themselves... So the BRICs are, as you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, The term itself was coined by Jim O'Neill, who was working at Goldman Sachs at the time back in 2001. But he was talking specifically about the BRIC, so Brazil, Russia, India, and China. South Africa joined later on. Um, But for Jim O'Neill, the designation of BRIC was primarily about emerging markets, so very much about the rising economic powers uh, that that were that were coming about in the first first decade of the twenty first century, um, although it was a designation that was applied to them, they didn't use it, and it was only towards the end of the decade that you start to see the the brick, and then BRIC's foreign ministers and leaders coming together initially through informal meetings at side events like the U, the UN General Assembly, and then organising their own formal summits uh, from about two thousand and eight nine onwards. Um, the most substantive. Mm-hmm. Thing that they've done, actually, and that has been in the last four years. In 2014, they uh, established a contingent reserve a- arrangement, which is a form of financial assist- assistance for I- any of the five countries that need it, uh, as well as the New Development Bank, which is supposed to be sort of presented as, a, as an alternative to the World Bank. Um, you know, I guess the CR- CRA, the Contingent Reserve Arrangement, is a sort of an alternative to the IMF. Now, of course, the BRICS themselves are, in, you know, are a bunch of rising powers, but they're sort of, their their influence is primarily, you know, at the regional level. So within their home regions, um, if you're looking at the wider environment, why did the BRICS come about? Um, if we think about sort of the nature of the, 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 of global, global politics, you know, the 1990s was the period of, you know, American hegemony, the, the the unipolar moment, it was the end of the cold war and the U S was basically paramount, um, what we find from, after, from around two thousand onwards is the emergence of you know these BRICS, these these emerging markets, who are primarily uh, talked about in an economic way, but increasingly they become sort of relevant for political reasons. Um, and I think it's a combination of both their rise as well as a uh, relative American decline. If we think about you know the two thousand and three war in Iraq. You know, America was never going to. It was un, unquestionable that America was not going to win that militarily. But then the occupation bogged them down, just as it did in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. They were not able to uh, see through to, to the to the political ends of their project. So, I guess in that respect, you know, this this raised questions. What about these other countries out there? What what influence can they can can they can they bring uh, bring to the table? I also think, as well, what's mm-hmm. interesting about um, about just the final point. In international relations, there's been quite a bit of a debate in, over the last decade and a half since they first emerged, which was a question of: are they a you know are they a challengers? Are they going to confront the United States and provide an alternative to the United States? Uh, or are they going to actually just become part of the international architecture, part of the furniture? Is the reason that they're be- being sort of be- being portrayed as challengers because they want to join the, t- the top table? And that's kind of sem- um, summarized effectively by two different, uh, two different ways of looking at them, either as spoilers, i.e. they want to sort of challenge the system, or as global citizens. They want to become you know, responsible stakeholders of, of, of the international system.
0: Very interesting, but uh, uh, specifically on the on the matter of, uh, of that is of con- uh, of concerns in your book. Um, mm. What would you say are the main themes uh, that are special about the rising power, the rising powers in regard to the Arab Israeli
1: yeah. conflict? So what? So what I was interested in. Part of the reason, I mean, I know something about the Arab Israeli conflict. I was living and working in it, and so I was quite curious to sort of see what does what does this mean in terms of these global powers to this particular conflict. Now, most of, these, most, most of these rising powers, their influence is primarily in their home regions. So for me, looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict is a question of what does this mean outside of their region? What impacts can they play outside? And I think um, you, this is where I've, I've broken down the, the book to look at different time periods. So I think one of the limitations of studying, about, studying the BRICS is that people are focused on a very sort of narrow period, basically the last decade and a half, whereas I wanted to look at them uh, as individual countries, because obviously they were only a group recently, but to look at how they interact with the, the conflict ever since the internationalisation of it in 1947. Um, but if I was going to talk about what they do uh, today, so over the last you know, couple of decades, they are very much focused on, on, the one, uh, on the one hand supporting the peace process, the Oslo peace process, which has been in place since about 1993, and on the other hand developing diplomatic and economic relations uh, with the the two protagonists, um, so you have kind of this, in effect, since 1993, a split in terms of the the way that they treat the conflict. The conflict is dealt with through the peace process, which they they extend, uh, you know, di- diplomatic and and rhetorical support. And on the other hand, they maintain, you know, very, more more general sort of diplomatic relations. Um, they are broadly all in line. They all. Are committed to the peace process. They're all committed to the idea of a two-state solution. Um, but if you actually look at what they, how they engage with the conflicts in the past, I think you'll see variations and differences.
0: So uh, you make a differentiation between active and passive conflict management. Can you explain this differentiation?
1: Yeah, there are there are different there are different ways that you can look at conflict management, and I distinguish between active and passive conflict management. And I use the distinction as a way of summarizing the different intentions behind specific forms of action. Um, so most people assume that peace is the opposite of conflict, or and especially war. But peace itself has nuances, which scholars like uh, Roger McGuinty and Oliver Richmond have pointed out. And specifically, they sort of talk about two different types of peace: um, one which is positive peace, and the other one which is negative peace. Uh, negative is the one. Negative mm-hmm. peace is the one that most people are familiar with. It's essentially the absence of violence. But the thing about it is that it doesn't necessarily mean the removal of the reasons that cause are causing that conflict to happen. Uh, whereas positive peace aims to go beyond that. It aims to resolve, uh, address the, the, the grievances, to address the, the problems of, of, of the conflicts that that arose in the first place. So it wants to try and root out the, the causes of conflict. And um, So what I'm looking at is you can take a particular action – uh, for example, um, sanctions, and look at them through uh, active pa- conflict management lens, lens or a passive conf- conflict management lens. Um, so you, it, effectively, it's looking at what, why are you using sanctions? Are you using it to just uh, maintain, uh, maintain the status quo? Or are you using sanctions to actually try and effect a change, as transformation of the situation? In fact, actually, if you if you'd like, I can actually say um, give give some better examples about that as well.
0: Yes, please, please do.
1: Yeah. So if you think about peacekeeping, is is sometimes quite a good example because uh, you send troops into a conflict zone, and the question is what to what to what end are they being used? If they're just being kept maintained, if they're just being sent to keep the two sides apart, that would be a form of uh, you know negative conflict management. They're just there to keep the two sides apart. They're not looking to try and resolve the, the causes of the conflict. Um, of course, the downside of something like that is what happened in Srebrenica in 1995 when the Dutch peacekeepers were not able to keep um, Ser- the, the, the Bosnian Serbs apart from the Muslims and the massacre happened. Um, by, by contrast, mm-hmm. if you, you know you can also use this use peacekeeping in, in a more sort of proactive way, in an active way, where you uh, try and win hearts and minds, where you try and you know uh, challenge the the, the, co- the causes of the conflicts. This might mean sort of uh, not only maintaining um, sort of you know coercive measures, but also trying to involve involve the, uh, the community in security development. Uh, another way of looking at it might be that of foreign aid. So often, when we, especially in the case of Palestine, when we're looking at um, you know, the form of assistance that's been provided by the international community, at present, a lot of that is humanitarian aid. And usually a lot of that's the, the, a result of the situation that the Palestinians face. Um, but humanitarian assistance doesn't try to change the system. It just tries to alleviate or to reduce the, the problems that those people are facing. Whereas uh, one of the things that I was looking at, which uh, while I was in, in Beers 8, was the question of using aid as a form of development. So trying to change the, the situation for on the ground, trying to transform the lives of people that are the beneficiaries of this form of aid. So you know, aid itself, it can be used for different purposes. It could be used for active, for, for active conflict management or for passive conflict management.
0: From the Israeli point of view, it seems that there is no greater threat currently lurking over the state and the BDS uh, your work suggests an illuminating understanding of the BDS in this context as a mechanism for intervention in conflict resolution or management at least. Can you discuss this in some detail? Yeah. How does the BRIC country see the BDS? Yeah.
1: So before I before I come to how the BRICS engage with the BDS, it might just be useful to give a little bit of context to the to the to the BDS, the boycott Divest, divestment and sanctions movement. So this yes. has been sort of a prominent um, feature, is become an increasingly prominent feature of Palestinian society since uh, 2005, July 2005, when it was established uh, by around 170 organizations. And they came together because effectively, uh, for, for many, of the, many of the people, participants, the people involved in that, they feel that the peace process is not necessarily delivering. Uh, the peace process, which was set up in around 1993, uh, was, was effectively supposed to deliver a two-state solution by around 1999. And here we are, two decades later, and, it's, and that still hasn't happened. So, for the Palestinians involved in the in the BDS movement, they see it as an alternative way uh, to to achieve uh, achieve their goals. One, mm-hmm. when you look at when you look at af- when you look at the officially what the BDS says, uh, they 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 port- they port- they see it. They see Israel as occupying Palestinian land and den- denying Palestinians their rights. Um, Uh, We're both in the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, as well as Israel, and including refugees from from, from outside. So the way that the BDS sees uh, its mission is to uh, try and build links with um, community groups in societies across borders as a way of putting pressure on governments to... To get Israel to comply to, it, to international law and its obligations. So that's a little bit of the background of the BDS movement. It's very much a bottom-up, grassroots-related approach to to, uh, to, to 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 political action, which is interesting in the case of applying this to to the BRICS, because of course BRICS we're talking about international relations, and people tend to look at things from sort of you know, across states or state to state, whereas the BDS is obviously looking at trying to influence um, you know in, influence from from below. Now, what I think is interesting about the BRICS is that the BDS itself, um, its international activities has been uh, previously geared towards those societies and those governments which have had probably more involvement with Israel in the past, and that would be primarily North America and Europe, Australia to a certain extent. So the BDS and its its, uh, activists are very much focused on those particular particular, uh, countries, uh, the BRICS obviously are an area that they're interested in, but there is a bit of a, a difference and a bit of attention because um, if you can comp- if you, you can actually break down the BRICS between very simplistically here between those which are democratic and those which are less uh, um, less less democratic, more authoritarian. So the countries which are more democratic, like Brazil, India, and South Africa, you see the BDS uh, movement building links and ties with uh like-minded uh groups in those countries uh generally those groups tend to be sort of on the political left i would say so trade unionists left left left-wing political parties social movements what you find is the bds finds it much harder to build links with uh, society in china and russia partly because the nature of civil society in both of those countries is a bit weaker um, that said, in terms of, so that's, so that's one distinction. You can sort of talk about it in organisational terms. Um, but in terms of actual delivery, sort of what impact has the BDS had on the BRICS governments itself, um, that's a little bit harder to, to define because often actions that happen uh, are not necessarily always attributed to the BDS. The BDS will claim it, but it's not necessarily always the case. And so to give you sort of a quite contemporary example, because we're coming up to the World Cup, um, you know, there's been some talk about Argentina's decision not to uh, play their play their football match in Israel as a, a win for the for the BDS. Um, although they've mm-hmm. never they've not said anything themselves about the BDS. This is the BDS claiming it. So yes. I think what's interesting is the but what is interesting is to sort of see has this is that so if you are looking at whether the BDS has made an impact. Um, on these BRICS governments, it's much harder to be able to, to say, say for certainty that that has happened. Um, it is certainly the case that what we've seen in Brazil, Brazil especially, we see um, some of the state governments, so the sub-regional governments, have uh, divested from, from contracts with, this, from, from, with this re- Israeli companies we have seen that in South Africa, there is an, an element of the ruling African National Congress Party, which is quite sympathetic to the, um, to the BDS movement. Uh, that's obviously because there's a, there's a history there. Uh, the BDS mm-hmm. uh, sees Israel's occupation as a form of settler colonialism and calls it apartheid, which is similar to how, uh, so, so, they see par- so they see similarities in their struggle with what happened in South Africa you know, during the apartheid era so you can see you know sort of elements of sympathy um, elements of action that have that's but how much of this is related to the BDS is uncertain i mean even just to give you an example in the case of china about 3 years ago there was a, a deci- an announcement or a request made by the chinese government that it's that it's its workers chinese workers who are based in israel should not be working on israeli settlements now what was interesting mm-hmm. is that the bds claims that that was uh, an example of of a, of a victory for them, although the Chinese government would never have claimed it themselves. But it is interesting to sort of see. I think whereas whereas it's more difficult to actually spent, to see the the actual result of of BDS action. Certainly, what you can set, definitely see more of is the organisation of the BDS in these different BRICS countries.
0: This is fascinating.
1: Each and every one
0: of the of the BRICS countries is a, a fascinating case in itself. Looked from uh, the Israeli perspective. Uh, some because of the intricate histories they have with Israel. Uh, they think about China, well, the, Russia and India. China for its uh, well uh, growing dominance, and Brazil, obviously, for uh, uh, I guess various historical reasons. Also, uh, maybe the most interesting immediately in the context of BDS is South Africa, as you mentioned. Uh, much of the discussion along the BD, uh, uh, on the BDS goes along the history of the uh the fight against apartheid um and um and Israel's history with apartheid South Africa is uh what well, is a complicated story to say the least uh maybe you can suggest some main themes uh you see as emerging when you br- break up the brick into these uh, specific individual uh countries
1: well, I mean, I think if we go back to South Africa, I think yes, you know, there's, I mean, it's, but that's quite a black and white one um, in in terms of thinking about the, the think about the past because you have during the Cold War, um, you know, the South Africa's apartheid regime is very much sort of, you know, a, as a pariah is, it sort of has has this relationship with the, with the with the with Israel, which. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, you can sort of look at it from a government level or you can look at it from a, from a society level. Certainly, the, you know, it's much clearer between the apartheid regime and, 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 and Israel. Um, when that changes, when, when the apartheid regime falls in, in South Africa and there's a replacement, you know, the, and the ANC comes in under Nelson Mandela, there's a real uh, concern within Israel as to what does this mean for us? Um, you know, are we going to be able to still have the same kind of relationship very unlikely, because given that the ANC was, um, you know, uh, discriminated against, um, it very much built uh, solidarity ties with the Palestinians. But what is interesting is that, you know, over the over the last two decades um, since since apartheid ended in South Africa, you've seen um, I wouldn't call it a warm relationship, but it is a formal relationship that exists between the South African. ANC government and, and Israel, there is an element within the ANC government, which is still sympathetic to the Palestinians and still pushes for a more, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian um, BDS sympathetic uh, set of policies. But, you know, what effectively sort of, you know, the, uh, I guess, the, the international relations of, or, the, or the, the, the priorities of, you know, formal diplomacy sort of win out. There. In the case of in the case of Brazil, Brazil's been interesting because um, a lot of the sort of Brazil's rise occurred over the last decade and a half with, uh, with its economic growth, um, and in a way the you know the Lula government sort of rode the wave of that, and it sort of and it, and in a way Brazil was also um, representing sort of the the change which was happening in Latin America more generally, a shift from sort of from from the from the right from white, right-wing political parties to the political left um, you know as democracy got consolidated and so lula was very sort of visible and very much on the world stage but what you found in brazil after around 2013 2014 is uh, an economic downturn and that has obviously had an impact on its uh, not only on its political uh, Situation and, and including, you know, the impeachment of the president two years ago, but also has had an impact on its foreign policy. So you don't find Brazil um, being especially proactive these days when it comes to uh, its foreign policy, either in the region or outside, as it would have done in the case of Israel and Palestine. Um, Russia is an interesting case because what we're talking about here, and we, we haven't we haven't actually mentioned it, you know, Russia is the odd one out when it comes to the BRICS because. Whereas we're talking about rising powers, Russia is actually sort of only on the rise again, having spent, you know, the, the, cold, the period of the Cold War as a superpower. So really, it's kind of, so it's, a, it's, only a re, it's only a relative rise since, since you know, since it's collapse in the, in the 1990s. Um, certainly, there's an interesting, um, you know, relationship that goes on there. There was obviously back in the 1980s, um, sort of, you know, a growing rapprochement between uh, Israel Israel and 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 Russia um, which saw uh, you know the, the which saw the the shift of, of Russian Jewish migrants into Israel so they they're also an important um, element and an important component in, in, in Israel today um, I guess in terms of sort of like pra- practical politics I think what you find is uh, sort of uh, very much sort of uh, talking at at the, at the high level between Netanyahu and Putin over sort of managing their their, their respective positions in Syria. Um, so I find, uh, but Ch- and then finally, China um, stands out, obviously, from, from all five of them. I mean, of the, of the five BRICS countries, you know, it's been sort of caricatured as China plus four, because China is really probably the only one of the five that has, you know, a global reach um, in the sense of not just at the moment only... Primarily economic, and it has a tendency to try and stand apart. It doesn't want to sort of get too involved in in providing security or becoming part of the uh, security uh, apparatus of, of the region, but uh, you know more generally. Um, but what you find is that I mean, I, what, there's been some interesting analogies drawn between China in the in, in the international system today to today with, say, for example, the United States about a century ago. If you think about the United States, you know in the Early part of the 20th century, it was an economic behemoth, but it was not uh, politically engaged. It was not uh, involved in in the key questions of of, of the day. So it it was it, yes. it adopted an isolationist approach. It sat out of the First World War and the Second World War until it couldn't couldn't avoid it any longer. At which point it becomes you know its political influence becomes tied up with its economic influence. And I think what we're seeing with with China today is is something similar. You know, it makes great it, it it makes great play on the fact that it is an honest broker, that it has no vested interests in the region and especially Israel and Palestine. That's not something you can say about the United States. But the thing about China is that it doesn't want to necessarily move beyond that economic relationship, that kind of rapport that it has. The question, of course, is going to be in the future. Will it be able to sustain that?
0: So uh, maybe we should uh, close with this uh, last issue. Can you maybe suggest some main themes uh, of how you see the in developing involvement of the BRIC countries uh, in the um, Arab-Israeli conflict in the coming years?
1: Mm. I think we're probably going to continue to see more of the same because unless there's a willingness for um, you know, the protagonists themselves to shift from the uh, way that they've been approaching the conflict... I don't think you're going to see the BRICS doing anything themselves. I mean, certainly you've seen, I mean, what you did see over the, over the last decade was uh, countries like Brazil <clears throat> demanding more attention and a seat at the table. And certainly you find uh, countries like China, you know, calling for an international conference or, you know, an international solution to the conflict, but they're not, they're not proactively going out and trying to uh, replace the Oslo Peace process—they're not actively trying to replace the United States as, as the as the primary mediator to all of this. So, in a way, it kind of—but in a way, it kind of suits them because, on the one hand, yes. they can they can uh, stand apart and criticize from afar. Which, but on the on the other hand, they don't have to necessarily, um, you know, take a stand in all of this. So, I suspect oh. that's probably going to be, to remain the case. What if if things are going to change? It's going to change from within the conflict, and that's going yes. to be primarily, I guess. Um, that will depend primarily on whether or not which which path the Palestinians take. Because at the moment, the the nature of the conflict, and I say this in the book, um, I don't accept I don't accept that the conflict is one between two equals. It's actually uh, an imbalanced one. Um, you know. Israel does have you know significant power and, inf- and 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 access to resources that the Palestinians don't uh, the problem with the peace process is that it, it sort of treats them as sort of two equals so it's it's masking it's masking the reality now what's interesting that, I mean and, and for for the for, for Israel um this is you know a, a perfectly reasonable state of affairs I mean they don't want to change the status quo so you know they're quite happy to have sort of sporadic talks, and negotiations, um, insofar as that doesn't change, that doesn't change the dynamics of the conflict. So, if there's going to be any change, it's presumably going to come from which which approach the Palestinians choose to take. The Palestinian leadership continues to accept the the, the peace process, and it has adopted since 2011 something called the internationalization strategy, which I guess is kind of the flip side of BDS. Uh, the internationalization strategy yes. has meant that they have gone out to try and join, um, become member states of various international organizations like, you know, the International Criminal Court and UNESCO. And and the, the logic behind this is that if they become, they see, they think that if they become a member of these organizations, then this uh, extends reciprocity to the um, other members of, of these organizations to, to hold Israel to account. That's the the Israeli leadership approach. So it's kind of, I guess, you know, the, the it, so it's trying to sort of Operate at the international level. The BDS, obviously, is is operating sort of at a subnational level, um, at the grassroots basis. But it's also trying to trying to do the same thing. It's trying to use international law to to, to challenge um, the you know the Israeli position. Now, the question I think is going. To, I mean, in some ways, the Palestinian leadership's internationalization strategy doesn't really change very much. And there have been it's been it's been observed that the that some countries like China have actually said to you know the Palestinian leadership you know this is not going you know don't don't shift away from what you're currently doing so I think the BDS is certainly much more is, is different because it's actually it challenges the the prevailing system whether it's going to mm-hmm. uh, deliver what it wants to do is, an, is another matter that's 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 uncertain. Um, But I think that's the thing that probably be the the space to watch.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Professor Burton, thank you for being in the show and uh, good luck with the book.
1: Well, thank you very much.